Just want to reiterate, too, what Renee said during announcements about the small groups. Uh, some people asked for some clarifying. There's actually six of them going on, and the one actually starts today at the home of Russ and Renee Wenzinger, and that one is a potluck. So if you want to eat, just go over to the Winsingers today after church. Don't even stick around for the small group. Just go get the food and go home. So that one starts today. Uh, we got one at Rosebrocks. That's uh, south of Hamler. One at Baker's, north of Hamler. One in Signet. Uh, Winsingers outside of Deschler. One at our house outside of Deschler. And then we also have one over in Milton Center. So Jonah, that's uh, a great book. Great book of just discussion. I mean, it's just one of those books you just start talking about Jonah. And it just leads to so many different topics and discussion. It'll be a wonderful time. So the first one starts today. The rest of them, I think, pick up sometime this week or start next week. Information's back on the back. Prayerfully consider it. Once again, the vision behind that is out of Acts 20, where Paul said that he went house to house teaching. Just a great time for the body of Christ to get together. Hey, let's pray before we get into this. 2 Timothy 3. Heavenly Father, as always, you wrote this through your spirit. Help us just to learn and to grow by this, to not just hear it, but to apply it to our lives and really become the people you've called us to be in all that we do and all that we say. We thank you and we praise you in your name. Amen. All right, if you weren't with us last week, we did the first part of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Perilous times, difficult, terrible, literally hard to take, harsh, savage. Same word used in Matthew 8 to describe demon-possessed men. This is the time that we live in. As we mentioned last week, it's like turning on the nightly news and watching that. You see the perilous times that we live in. So the subject came up of how do we handle this then? And this is what we get into today is the practical of how do we handle living in this time? Because it's going to keep getting worse. Take a look at verse 13 of chapter 3. Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's going to keep getting worse. Evil will keep rising and that false religion will keep rising. As we mentioned last week, the earth is a sinking ship. And our responsibility is to get as many people on the lifeboats as we can. And that lifeboat is Jesus Christ. So, with that being said, Paul now, speaking to Timothy, says, Okay, Timothy, how do you handle this? How do you handle this world getting worse and worse and worse? Well, verse 10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Paul says, you know what, Timothy? You have carefully followed my life. And that's going to help give you strength and wisdom and guidance to know what to do in this perilous time. That's a pretty big statement. I mean, if somebody comes up and says, James, I'm really struggling. It's the end of the world, right? Everything's falling apart. What should I do? Just follow me and it'll be okay. And that's what Paul's saying. That's a pretty big statement to say. He even goes one step further. In 1 Corinthians 11, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ Jesus. So if somebody came up and said, hey, I really want to learn what Jesus is like. Hey, well, didn't it just imitate me? Because my life is such a picture of Jesus Christ. You're actually imitating Christ as you imitate my life. In Philippians, he says this, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. See, Timothy saw Paul in every way. And he knew that Paul was the real deal. Our life was created to be lived openly as a witness to others. Part of our witness is how we handle life. As we mentioned last week, perilous times, difficult, harsh, rough. Part of us just wants to run to the hills, build a fort, and hide. No. 
We're called to live this life in this world as this is going on to imitate Christ Jesus and all that we do and say. So people see our life, our purpose, our walk, our patience, our love, our perseverance, that we are the real deal, that we go through difficult times at work just like everybody else, but we handle it differently. We go through difficult times in life, be it physically, emotionally, or spiritually, but yet we handle it differently. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. You know, a couple years ago, we really introduced this word, this idea of disciple. It's a noun and a verb. It's what I am, and it's what I do. I am a disciple. I am a follower of Christ, but I also disciple people by encouraging them to go deeper in their walk with Christ. Well, it's the same thing with the word witness. The word witness, in that legal sense, testifying for others. We're supposed to be testifying for what Jesus Christ has done in our life. So as a witness for the Lord, what I want to do is witness for him. I want to tell you what Jesus has done in my life. See, a witness is what I am, but it's also what I do. I am a witness for Jesus Christ, and as a witness, I go out and I witness for him. So I'm a disciple. It's what I am and what I do. I'm a witness. It's what I am. It's what I do. Paul is saying, this is what it is. I am an open life created to be lived openly as a witness to others of what Jesus Christ has done in my life. So that's why he can tell Timothy, you have carefully followed my doctrine. That word literally means always be at one side, always be present with them. That you see everything about them. I heard a great teaching recently at the pastor's conference I just got back from. Where they talked about how difficult marriage can be. And one of the reasons marriage is so difficult is because you're around the person 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. You know, when we come to church, we can fake it for an hour or two, Right? And if we go to work, we can put on the happy face for a while. But when you live with somebody and you see every aspect of their life all the time, you see the real deal and the real person. And that's why sometimes in marriages you start to see that tension and that frustration. I mean, it's a good marriage. They love them, but they just see them getting at each other because they're so used to seeing each other and the sin in each other's life. We sometimes lose the patience. We sometimes use the love because we are always at one side, always present with them. And when those things start to rub against us a little bit. But Paul, in a good way, is telling Timothy, man, you are always with me. You saw what I'm like. So he says, carefully follow. That's a pretty big statement. Can we say that? If you want a real life example of that, for you that have kids at home, you know your kids pick up your traits. You know that. My firstborn, my third, and even my youngest Use sarcasm as a weapon. I mean, they just use it as a weapon, and they're even learning how to use it at the appropriate times. Like, wow, that's good. <laughs> Where did they get that from? They got that from Dawn. I, I'm, not, I'm not picking on Dawn. I'm just saying, that is Dawn's weapon of choice, is sarcasm. It's like Dawn goes through the little toolbox of life. How do I want to handle this situation? Oh, I will be sarcastic. And she just pulls out that toolbox of life of sarcasm. My kids are picking that up. My middle child, Kenan, he is funny. He hasn't learned when to stop. And one thing we're trying to train him is, okay, know when to end the joke. Don't take it too far. Now, where do you learn that from? Well, that one's me. Okay, I'll take credit for that. They pick up those traits because they are carefully following, always present, always at one side. But for Paul and Timothy, Paul could say, Timothy, follow me because I'm going to imitate Jesus so closely that you're actually imitating Christ as you imitate me. That's a pretty big statement. Now, he kind of just name drops here in verse 11 some of the stuff. He basically says, Timothy, you know what I went through. You remember verse 11, which happened to me at Antioch at Iconium at Lystra. Well, he doesn't go into detail, but thankfully, 
knowing the rest of the Bible, we can go back and see what Paul went through. Go with me, if you will, to Acts 13. Acts 13. Acts 13. Paul says, Timothy, you know my life. You know how I have lived it. You know what happened at Antioch. You know what happened at Iconium. You know what happened at Lystra. So what happened at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? Let's find out. Acts 13. Acts 13, starting in verse 42. Paul just gets done doing this great message. How do they respond? Verse 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Wow. That's pretty good ministry at Antioch. Can you imagine teaching? And all of a sudden, everybody says, this is so good, the whole town shows up. They are just so excited to see what God is doing and what the Lord is doing and how he's moving. The whole city came together to hear the word of God. So what happened in Antioch? Fruit. Lots of fruit. Well, what happened next? Verse 45. When the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. You know what almost always follows fruit? Conflict. So what happened in Antioch? Fruit followed by Conflict. Let's see what happens next. Verse 46, Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Jump ahead to verse 48. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. You know what happens after conflict? More fruit. I think you'll get the pattern. Guess what happens after fruit? Verse 50. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men in the city, raised up persecutions against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. If you want the definition of what ministry is, it's fruit followed by conflict, followed by fruit, followed by conflict. That's what happened in Antioch. You have moments of where it clicks, it comes together, amen, then followed by days where it's like, what am I doing? And maybe that happens if you lead up a small group or you have a Bible study or you teach in the back or maybe just even at work. You go into work one day and all of a sudden you're telling people about Jesus. You're saying, how can I pray for you? The word of God is alive and active and there's fruit. You go into work the next day and no one can stand you. It's conflict. Then you have fruit. Then you have conflict. Part of ministry is that cycle. Sometimes it clicks, amen, praise the Lord, enjoy that season of fruit. Sometimes there's conflict, okay, Lord, help me through this. And you see in Antioch, fruit, conflict, fruit, conflict. Guess what happens when he goes to Iconium? Same thing, verse 1. Now it happened, chapter 14 in Iconium, that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and the Greeks, believed. Fruit. Followed by verse 2. The unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Fruit followed by conflict. Now, the same pattern continues, but when we get to Lystra, now in verse 8, instead of fruit followed by conflict, I now describe it as wow followed by wow. And you'll see what I mean. Verse 8. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking, Paul observing him intently, and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leapt and walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. 
And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes, ran in among the multitudes, crying out, saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God. That's wild. Have you ever led a Bible study where it got done, people said, man, you're a God. I don't think that's ever happened. That's wow. That's sometimes you have these wow moments in ministry where it just all completely comes together. And you just walk away from that thinking, Lord, thank you. I got a small, tiny glimpse of what that's like to just see it all come together and to see eternity and to see fruit. When those happen, enjoy them. You know what the danger of those moments happening are? People want to sacrifice to you. They love you. But you know what the other wow moment is? Verse 19, same chapter. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and drug him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. We went from wow to wow. Wow, they love me. Wow, they want to kill me. That's ministry. Wow, they love me. Wow, they hate me. And it can happen in the same message. Because that's the ups and downs of it. So when Paul says, you know what happened in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, fruit, conflict, fruit, conflict. So Timothy, don't get worked up. You're going to have good days, you're going to have bad days, you're going to have success. It's going to look like failure, but it's not. God is still moving. You saw that in Antioch. You saw that in Iconium. In Lystra, you saw God doing these amazing, miraculous things. You know what happened there, Timothy. You saw that in my life. I told you about it. And then also you saw them wanting to kill me. They stoned me, verse 20. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derba. Boy, that can happen so quickly. You're sharing with that coworker, and you're really ministering to them. They're really going through a difficult time, and you're helping them through it. Man, they love you. Thank you for those verses. Thank you for those passages. Thank you for being there. The next day you go to work, they don't even want to make eye contact with you. They don't even want to be around you. People won't return your phone calls, your texts, your emails. That's the wow of ministry followed by the wow they want to stone me of ministry. So what does Paul do? Verse 21. When he had preached the gospel to the city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, saying, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So what does Paul do after he gets stoned? He heads right back in. That's ministry. You get knocked down, and guess what? You get right back up again. Because you're doing it for the Lord, not for man. You're not doing it for the praise of people. You're doing it because God says it's just the right thing to do. You love people no matter how many show up. Paul says, best thing I could do is go back into Antioch, the town that stoned me. And I go back in, and guess what I'm going to tell him? Verse 22, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. See, Paul's just not just saying that passage. He's living it. The guy just got stoned. Some people even believe stoned to death. Some people believe this is where Paul possibly went up to the third heaven that he talks about in Corinthians. We don't know for sure, but they thought he was dead, verse 19. Dragged him out of the city. See, we don't really understand what stoning was like back during this Bible time. But what they would do during this time is they would take you and they would take you and they'd put you on the ground. And as they would put you on the ground, you would lay there on your back. 
And then whoever got to be first, be it the leader of the town, the leader of the whatever, would take a stone. And they weren't huge stones. These weren't boulder size. They usually picked a stone about the size of your hand that you could hold like this. And the first stone would be the stone that would lay it right over your head and just drop it right on your head. That's how they started it. And then once they did the first one, then the next people would join in. They would just drop stones on you. And just bury you alive in stones. Your stones is being dropped on you again and again and again. That's what he went through. Now, if that happened to you, and you were miraculously saved, how many of you would get up and say, hey, let's head right back in? So when Paul says, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God, he's not just saying it, he means it. Jump back now to 2 Timothy chapter 3. After he tells... Timothy, you know what I went through in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. All of a sudden, he says in verse 12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That verse now means a whole lot more. Because now we understand the context of what Paul is saying. See, so often we just quote verse 12. Somebody comes up and is like, Oh, it's really tough at work. Hey, you know, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The context of that is Paul's just saying, You know what I went through. I got stoned, man. And I went right back into the city because that's what ministry does. Fruit followed by conflict. Fruit followed by conflict. They love me. They hate me. But I'm still going to take a stand for the Lord because I'm not doing this based on how they respond. I'm doing this because this is what the Lord has called me to do. See, in our human world that we live in, so much of what we do is based on the reactions we get from other people. Oh, they like what I do, so I will still love them. Oh, they are no longer nice to me, so therefore I have the right to quit loving them. This town stoned Paul, and Paul says, I'm going back in. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And that's what it is. And so therefore he goes back in. And he loves them. And that's where the context of verse 13 now even makes more sense. Verse 13, but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Saying, Timothy, this is just going to keep getting worse. It's going to keep... Think about that for a second. We, we think it's bad now, right? I mean, we're living in the last days, perilous times, harsh, savage, right? It's going to keep getting worse. So that means now, 20 years from now, when my kids or starting a family and aren't adults, it's going to be even worse for them than it is right now. And I think it's pretty bad right now. Then if the Lord tarries, they go and they have kids. So another 20, 30 years from then, when I'm now a grandparent, and now they are having kids, it's going to be even worse. So, okay, what's the answer to this? It's going to keep getting worse and worse and worse. What's Paul's great answer to this? Okay, Timothy, write it down. Verse 14 You must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul's big comment to Timothy, the world is falling apart, so Timothy, stay in the Bible. That's what he says. Stay in the Bible. The world is getting worse and worse. What should I do? Read more. It's getting awful. I probably should go to more small groups. should underline more verses. I should study. I should pray more. I should be in the Word more. That's a pretty powerful statement. 
See verse 14. You must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of. Continue. Remain there. Abide there. Where is he supposed to stay? In the scriptures. Wow. That's how powerful the word of God is. That when the world is literally falling apart, Paul's great comment to Timothy is stay in the word. Not even just stay in the word. Jump ahead to chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Paul's last comment, remember this is the last book that Paul wrote through the Spirit. He's in the Roman dungeon awaiting execution. Verse 2, Timothy, my final words to you, keep preaching God's word. That's how powerful the word of God is. Now, do we believe that? I mean, do we really believe how powerful the word of God is? Now, why is the word of God so powerful? Look at verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. What we believe and what we teach is from Genesis to Revelation. This is the holy inspired word of God. We believe that when the Lord led these men to write this, just as it says in Peter, that the Holy Spirit led these men, that when pen touched paper, that this was the word of God that he gave to us. And this is how the Lord has chosen to communicate with us, is through the word of God and through the teaching of God's word. Now, could he have done a better system? My personal opinion is, I think so, right? Couldn't angels do a better job? I mean, couldn't he, Jesus himself, come down and spent more than 33 years? I mean, he, he left this book in our hands, and he's letting sinful human beings teach it? I mean, I know the Holy Spirit's leading and guiding, but come on, Lord. This is the system he wants to use. And I love the Word of God. I can't wait to hear Jesus teach it. In the book of Isaiah, the Bible says during the millennial reign, Jesus is actually going to be teaching at the temple. That's a small group to sign up for. Where are you going today? Oh, Jesus is teaching. I'm going to go hear what Jesus has to say about Isaiah. That'd be amazing. Now, but before I can go on with any other points, if we don't believe this is the actual word of God, nothing I say from this point forward means anything. Because unless we understand how powerful this book is, that it's alive, that it's active, and it's not just old words on paper. It is truly the word of God that the Lord has given us to use for him and his glory and to spread his gospel. What difference does it make? You know, at the pastor's conference, I'd love to go and write down all the notes that the pastors say and just their great comments and try to pass them off as my own. Um, Sandy Adams said this. I love him. He's a good pastor, a good teacher. It takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian to reach the whole world. It takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian to reach the whole world. Trust the edge of the Bible. Trust the power of the Bible. See, a lot of times we don't take the whole Bible, right? We like buffet Bible. We like chapters. We like books. We like the Gospels. I enjoy creation. I enjoy reading about this and that. And so what happens is we kind of don't take the whole Bible We kind of just do the buffet style and take pieces here and there. And what happens then is you get parts of it, but you don't get the whole counsel of God's word. And that's why it's so important to understand from Genesis to Revelation, this is the holy inspired word of God. So therefore, when someone comes to you with a problem, you're like, I don't know what to say. 
literally give them the word of God. When you're going through a difficult time in life and you don't know, and you're trying to figure out up and down, and I need comfort and peace, go to the literal word of God. This is how God has chosen to speak to us. But as believers, we have a tendency sometimes to just, dare I say, ignore that. And if we ignore that, we really don't understand the power that we have. Or, once again, we just take bits and pieces of it. We don't get the whole counsel. So what happens is you get truth of God's word, but maybe you don't have love. Or you get the love part, but you don't get the truth part. You have to have the whole counsel. Ephesians 4.15 says, speak the truth in love. Because have you ever seen somebody just take bits and pieces of the Bible and make it say what they want to say and do what they want to do with it? It can be dangerous. One of the points that really hit me at this last pastor's conference was they said this, make sure that you are equipping the saints and not whipping the saints. You know, I'm guilty of that. Sometimes, you know, you get something you're really passionate about, you're excited about it, and, okay, we're not moving quick enough, we're not moving forward enough, we're going to whip this into shape. And it's like, no, we're supposed to be equipping. Look at verse 17. The man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped. And boy, I'm wrong when we do the whipping and not the equipping. So, but what happens when you do that, that whipping? What good comes out of that? Well, it feels good for a moment. Years ago, I had, I had this guy that was coming out here, and, man, he loved God's Word. There's no doubt about that. And he knew the truth of the Scriptures. The love part of it, he didn't have down. But the truth part, he had down. So I was talking to him one time, and I said, How, how's it going? He goes, good, good. You know, everything was about, you know, getting out there and getting the Word out there, and, and amen. But do we have the love part? Well, he told this story that, uh, and this happens a lot for you guys, if you're driving your way to work and you do the same route every day, you probably run into the same people on your route. You know, maybe they're in front of you, behind you, you pass them, you know, something along that type of line. So on his way to work, he was always behind this car. And I don't know if the state of Ohio still does this or not, but he had the special license plates and not the good fun special license plates. The special license plates he got for driving under the influence. So he had those license plates. So this guy from church always got behind him. So he had this great idea that he took a dry erase board and put in the back of his card and wrote the passage that drunkards would not inherit the kingdom of God. And so what he did was he would get behind this guy and then pass him and then slow down. So he would have to follow him and he would see the dry erase sign that said drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is what he did. He would purposely get in front of this guy every day on the way to work. Now that's truth, right? That's scripture, right? But that's not love. That's not equipping. That's whipping. And so what's happening here is Paul is trying to tell Timothy, listen, you want to handle this, you want to handle this rough world, this, this falling apart world? Verse 14, continue, remain, abide in the teaching of God's word. And then what happens here? Stay in the scriptures because it's God's word. Verse 15, it will make you wise. I don't know how many times I get calls a lot of times. I don't know what I should do. What do you think? Hey, let's get in the Word and pray about it. Because God's Word will give us wisdom. It will make us wise. Because verse 16, all Scripture is given for inspiration of God. And if you're a note taker, four things here in your notes section of the bulletin. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction. Doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction. Depending on your translations, it may say teaching, rebuking, correcting, training. That's what God's Word does. So the first thing is God's word is useful for doctrine, it's for teaching. This gives us the moral guideline of what's right and wrong in this world. If someone comes up to me and says, is this action morally right or wrong? God's word tells me. It's doctrine. 
It's teaching. So therefore, I already have the standard set of what is right and wrong because God's word has laid the foundation of what is morally right and wrong. And I go to this and I trust this. This is the living, breathing word of God. So if you ever wonder what's right or wrong, let God's word be your doctrine, be your teaching. Now, the next one God's word is used for is for reproof or rebuke. Now, reproof and rebuke is when somebody's doing something they shouldn't, and you have to go correct them. Now, it's different than correcting. Reproof and rebuke means it's a little bit more straightforward. Their heart is maybe not into changing, and you need to go, and you need to be direct with them. You need to be honest with them. You need to be loving with them and say, this action will hurt you. It will hurt your family, and they need to be rebuked. But what gives you the right to correct me or rebuke me? God's word, not my word, God's word. Third one, correction. That means to restore. This is where somebody knows what they're doing in life is not right. They're hurt by this. They're struggling. Okay, you don't need to be rebuked. You need to be corrected. Let's get together. Let's talk about this. Let's pray about this. Let's encourage one another with it. Let's correct them. And the last one, instruction or training. This is the same word used to instruct kids. It denotes training and care. Hopefully this is what we're doing now. We're instructing, we're training to say this is how we're supposed to be. Each one is used at a different time. Sometimes we need doctrine and teaching. This is right, this is wrong, God's word says it. Sometimes we need rebuke. That action is hurting you, it's hurting your family, you need to stop. Sometimes we need correcting. Let's restore that person. They want things to be different. How? Through God's word. And lastly, we need times of instruction and training and teaching. What is the result of this? Verse 17, the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That idea there of being complete, thoroughly equipped, it literally means fitted. In the original language, it means the limb is in the right place. See, you can have limbs and be in the wrong spot. If my arms are where my legs should be and my legs are where my arms should be, I have the proper limbs. They're just not in the right place. You want the right place to be in the right place. And so, therefore, it's using God's word properly, correctly. Jump back to verse 15 of chapter 2. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be shamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing the word of truth. I want two arms, I want two legs, but I also want them in the right spot. I want people to use God's word but I want them to use it properly. A lot of people are out there using God's word, and they are not using it properly. You can take the Bible and make it say almost anything you want to say. You can ignore certain passages, and you can tweak certain passages. But if you want the whole counsel of God's word, it lines up from Genesis to Revelation, and you see the beautiful picture of it. Oh, and it's a beautiful thing. Because it's complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay, so we know this. I got this, right? I don't think any of you came in here this morning and said, wow, this is mind-blowing. I didn't know I was supposed to be in the Bible. You know this. So how do we do it? I mean, what does it actually look like to be in the Bible? Here's a couple of my points. You've heard me say these before. Take them or leave them. First one, I do believe that if you're going to start and you're going to make an honest effort to get in God's Word, I don't think you start in Genesis. I think you should start like in John. Learn about who Jesus is. And I know that doesn't make sense. Almost every other book you read, you start at the beginning, right? Why would we not start in Genesis? Because I think it's important to learn about who Jesus is. Because Jesus said the whole book is written about me. So once you learn about who Jesus is, now when you go back and you read Genesis, you look for Jesus in the book of Genesis. It's fascinating. Now that's tough. Because some people, they they really want to start at the beginning. 
It's weird to start in the middle. It's like, I'm going to find out the ending before the book's over. Okay, well, the ending is we win and we go to heaven. Okay, I'll just tell you the ending right now. <laughs> Dawn's got these books, and she loves reading them, and they're Christian Amish romance novels. And she just, she just loves them. And so she'll have them laying around, and every now and then I'll pick one up, and I'll go to the last page, and I'll say, you want me to tell you how it ends? And she gets really angry. There's no spiritual point. I'm just kind of confessing that right now. Um, start in John. That's my personal opinion. Start in a gospel. Learn about who Jesus is. And then you can go back and start filling in all the missing pieces there. Number two, you've heard me say this many times. Don't treat it like a have-to and don't treat it like homework. If you treat God's word as a have-to or homework, you're never going to get as much out of it as you possibly could. I mean, if you get up in the morning and say, okay, my daily reading is John 1 through 4. Oh, boy, four chapters. Hope it's not too long. Oh, good, they're not that long. You're not going to get much out of it. You're treating it like homework. You're treating it like a have to. That's not the way we treat God's word. I want to get up and say, wow, Lord, you have given me this book, and this is your word. I mean, this is how God chose to communicate to me. And so, therefore, I want to start my day out with that. I want to encourage my kids to be in that. I want to encourage my wife to be in that because this book is alive and active. It said it will make me wise. The Bible says right here, I'll be thoroughly equipped why would I not want to start with this during the day? They said at the pastor's conference, too, that really hit me. If the Bible is not driving you, then what is driving you? Think about that. If the Bible is not what is driving you in your life, what is driving you? When you get up in the morning, what is getting you going on the day? Coffee? The morning news? Hopefully some good music on the radio? That's very temporary. The Bible is what drives you through your day. To say, this is what gives me the energy, the excitement, the purpose in life, and so therefore I'm going to go with it. That's what drives us. And once again, if the Bible's not driving us, what is driving us? Now, I heard John Corson, great pastor, do a great teaching on this. I'm going to steal some of his points right here, so give credit where credit's due. One of the things he says when it comes to studying the Bible is this. He says, read it through thoroughly, don't be a nibbler. Read it through thoroughly, don't be a nibbler. Read John 1, then read John 2, then read John 3. See, sometimes we like to nibble, right? See, you can do that, right? If you just take the Bible, and I'm really going through a tough time. Lord, give me something. All righty, Psalm right here. Okay, Psalm, oh, this is good. Psalm 107, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. That's, Lord, exactly what I needed to hear. Amen, right? That's the beauty of God's word, okay? So we can try that again. See, most of the time when you open up the Bible, you go into Psalms. Look, I just opened up Psalm 110. Wow, I mean, this is good stuff. But every now and then you get something funky. Like I just flipped it open. Job, my flesh is caked with worms and dust. My skin is cracked and breaks out afresh. Amen. Um, that's a refrigerator verse. Don't be a nibbler. I'm assuming most of you have a pantry, you have a cupboard at home, and you have stocked that food with things that you like. I doubt for lunch that you're going to go in there, turn around three times, close your eyes, stick your hand in the cupboard, and bring something out and eat it. Now, if you did, you'd get something because you bought it. You liked it. But what do you really want? You want the thorough, complete meal. By going through the Bible, you get the full meal. You're not nibbling on pieces here and there. Read it through thoroughly. The next point he says is pray it in. This is a book written by God to us. Have communication with him as you're going through it. 
Lord, I'm not understanding this passage. Give me wisdom. Give me guidance here. Lord, I'm not seeing this. Can you help me? Oh, Lord, I like this. This is what I needed to hear. I'm going to mark this. I'm going to underline this. I'm going to pray this into my life. This is what my wife needs to hear. This is what my kids need to hear. This is what my family needs to hear. I'm going to go put this on the fridge. Praying it into my life. Third one, write it down. If it's important enough for God to communicate to us, it's important for us to take notes on it. Deuteronomy 17 When one of the kings of Israel would become king, according to the law, he was required to write out his own handwritten copy of the law as a reminder to him of what God's word says. Write it down. I don't know what you do. If you're a circler, if you're an underliner, if you're a highlighter, if you write it down, I don't know. I I write down the verses I like. I write them out by hand, and if I really need to or want to, I'll put them on my fridge in my own handwriting as a reminder to me, this is what God's word has to say. Next one, pass it on. This book is supposed to be meant to be shared. If God gave you something in devotions in the morning, pray for opportunities to pass that blessing on to other people. You know, I was going through John, and you know, I was reading the passages about how my sheep hear my voice. Wow. Lord, I can hear your voice. I can hear what you want me to do in my life. You can lead me, guide me, direct me through your word, through the Spirit, through prayer. It's amazing how then I'll talk to people the rest of the day after reading that verse and be like, yeah, James, I'm really struggling. I don't know what to do. I'll be like, hey, guess what I read this morning? The Lord will lead us and guide us. We can hear his voice. He'll tell us what he wants us to do through his word, through prayer. We can know. Now, if I read a passage in the morning, oh, I'm going to pass that on to somebody. They could be blessed by that. There's times I've read a devotional, and I'm making a copy of it, and I'm sending it to them. Hey, I just read this the other day, and I thought it would bless you. Pass it on. Why is the dead sea the dead sea? Water runs into it, but no water ever runs out of it. It just stays there. And sometimes that happens spiritually. We get a lot of fat sheep. They're eating, and they're eating, and they're eating, and they never share it. They never pass it on. So what happens is they sure have a lot of knowledge and wisdom in the Lord, but they're spiritually dead because they're not passing it on. So when you read something in the morning, Lord, who can I share this with today? And the last one, this is one of the points that... um, I like that I throw out there. You're supposed to chew on it. The Bible uses this word, meditate on God's word. Now, meditate has gotten a bad rap. You know, if you called me up and said, James, what would you do this morning? Oh, I like to get up every morning and meditate. We automatically take that the wrong way. The word meditate in the Bible is used to stop, to pause, to think about God's word. And once again, you're not reading it like homework. You're not reading it like a have to. If there's a verse that hits you, you may stop and spend a lot of time on that one verse meditating on it. The word meditate literally means to growl, to roar over it. It's this idea, it carries the idea of the lion over the prey. If you have outside cats and your outside cat gets a piece of food and the other cats come around it, what do they do? They hiss, they growl, because they're over that food. If I'm doing devotions and my kids come up to me, I growl at them. No, I'm just kidding, I don't. But it's that idea of you're so focused on this. You're, you're you know, like, oh, Lord, what is this trying to say? And you're just really focusing on it. A lot of times when people do that word meditate, uh, they use the synonym of ruminate on it. And if you know anything about cows, that's what cows do. They eat the grass, chew on it, guess what? It goes down to one stomach, comes back up, chew on it some more, goes back down to another stomach. Chews it up, comes back more. And they do this. They chew the cud. They just keep on ruminating on it, chewing on it. Same thing happens spiritually. You read a passage in the morning, you chew on it the rest of the day. So next thing you're at work, a couple hours later, that passage comes to mind. Wow, Lord, what are you trying to say? They're chewing on it some more. 
Next thing you know, your afternoon, you're still at work. That passage comes to mind again. You chew on it a little bit more. You think about it. And that's what God wants you to do. You start your day off with Him. You start your day off in the Word. And the rest of the day, you just kind of keep meditating on it and just chewing on it. Who can I pass this along to, Lord? How do I need to write this down to remember it? How can I pray this into my life? And how can I keep reading it thoroughly? Once again, never underestimate the power of God's Word. It is a sword. It is alive. It is active. Now, be careful. You don't want to just always be learning, but to never really know and understand who Jesus Christ is. It's not a competition who knows the most Greek, the most Hebrew, can quote the most verses. It's knowing God's Word, applying God's Word, and then rightly dividing it and using God's Word. Lord, how do you want me to use it today? I mean, go back here one more time to these passages. Verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. This is how the Lord has chosen to communicate with you. He wrote you a book. Wow, I want to read that, Lord. And it is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Oh, that's what I want. I want to be complete, fitted, in the right place, perfected to what God has for me. And when I'm going through difficult times, the world is falling apart, Paul's great advice to Timothy, stay in the Word. Stay in the Word, people. I don't know what you're going through today. It may be good. It may be bad. It may be ugly. Stay in the Word. It's alive. It's active. It will bless you. Now, if this is something you struggle with, and you're like, James, I hear this. I want this. I don't know how to do this. Call me up. Talk to me. Talk to Rich. Talk to Renee. We'll share with you what we do for our daily devotions. I am not saying copy the way we do. Everybody has to do it their own way and do it own uniquely. But we can try to get some good devotionals into your hands. We encourage you to get involved with some of these small groups. You know, a lot of what we do out here, Sunday mornings especially, you know, it's almost like this straight lecture for like 40 minutes. Wednesday nights, there's more give and take with questions and answers. But even with the small groups, it's even more so. You can just talk about God's Word and it will bless you. Get involved with some of these small groups. Get involved with some of these discipleship classes. Get into the Word. See what happens. I tell you, man, you will definitely be blessed by that. Marv, if you can come forward here for the final song. As Marv's getting ready, I just want to remind you, we're getting to a pretty busy season out here at church. Uh, lots of opportunities to serve. Salvation Army bell ringers back there. Uh, potluck's coming up. Operation Christmas Child. Just a reminder, the church takes care of the shipping for that. You don't need to worry about that. Bring the box in. It will be blessed. Uh, small groups going on. We encourage you to get involved with those things. Go where the Lord leads. And uh, we just want you to encourage you with those things. So we'll give it over to Marv for a final song. And close you out with a word of prayer.